Hello, survivalists. This is The Crux, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. Hello, Julie. How are you doing today? Good, Casey. How are you? Good. It's good to see you as always. Yes, it is. I've got a good one for you today, Casey. Tell me. Okay, so today I'm going to tell you the story of Steve Callahan. He's an accomplished solo sailor trying to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. He meets bad weather and his boat sinks. He set adrift for 76 days in a life raft. That is my literal nightmare. Well, it was his literal nightmare, too. And uh, anything you can imagine that would have gone wrong did go wrong for Steve. So this story is a phenomenal story of survival against all odds. Um, he is still here to tell about this fateful winter in 1982 when this occurred. So I'll just get right into it. Steve Callahan was 29 years old. He was born on February 6th, 1952. And I I chose this story because I share the same birthday. He's older oh. than me, but we were born we were born on the same day, so felt a kindred connection. Do you uh, think about Steve Callahan when you're blowing out your birthday candles? <laughs> you're like, it's his birthday today. Well, I will from from next birthday on. I'll definitely be thinking about him because he he ended up with more birthdays than he thought he was going to get at one point in his life. Oh. Yeah, that's a gift. It's all a gift for Steve. So he was 29 <laughs> years old, and this was in 1982. So this is a, a story that's been around for a while. And Steve had built a sailboat. He built it himself. He designed it himself. And the name of the boat was a Napoleon Solo. It was a 21-foot... Do you know what a sloop is, Casey? Mm -hmm. I do not. It's a sailboat that has a single mast, and usually the single mast has one headsail in front of the mast that goes towards the bow of the boat, and then one mainsail behind the mast that goes to the back of the boat. So a pretty simple design. Now, when our story starts, he had already just achieved his lifelong goal of sailing across the Atlantic from the U.S. to England, and he went with his friend Chris, Chris Latcham. The two of them uh, crossed the Atlantic and marked off a major item on their bucket list. So he was feeling pretty good. Well, Chris left Steve in England, as was planned, and then Steve signed up to compete in a sailing race called the Mini Transat. Transat, like trans. So this was going to be a solo sail back across the Atlantic, and it starts at a town called Penzance, which is in the southern tip of the UK. And it ends in Antigua, which is like 3,500 miles back across the Atlantic. And the plan was to do this by himself, which he felt really confident about. He was a really accomplished sailor and had seen all kinds of challenging seas. And he thought this was going to be pretty straightforward. So he went into it kind of feeling good and like... He was set up for success. Little did he know. So early on, uh, he's kind of heading south out of Penzance 
England. His ship right away gets damaged in strong winds. And there was some unusual weather. A lot of ships in that transat race ended up getting damaged. And before he really even sort of left the coastal area of Spain, he was out of the race. There was too much damage to his ship or his sailboat to continue in the race. So he kind of eddies out there in Spain and hangs out while some work is done on his sailboat and his repairs are made. Takes them a couple months. And he's sort of given up on the race, but still he's got to get back. He's got to get back across the Atlantic. He's running out of money and he's getting a little antsy and kind of just ready to get back and start the next chapter of his life. He's at kind of a crossroads. In his own words, he said at this point in his life, his life was in shambles. His marriage had recently ended. He was sort of looking for an escape and kind of just wanting to to check out of normal life for a little while, which was part of what inspired him to get on the open ocean. So he expected that this sail might take him a couple weeks, like two to three weeks, 3,500 so miles across the Atlantic. Was he planning on going the same route that he would have gone continued on had he been going with the race was he was going to kind of follow that route so he was bound for antigua and he thought oh maybe i'll I'll be out of money by then so maybe i'll get a job and save up some money and it was had really a pretty adventurous spirit about the whole thing so uh boats repaired he heads down the coast of spain to the canary islands and that was his takeoff point i had to look at this on a map because i've never been there And the Canary Islands, they're part of Spain, but they're really just a little um, south of Spain, kind of more off the coast of Morocco. So pretty, pretty far south. But that's where he launches on January 1982. I think it was January 29th at the end of the month. And he's off crossing the Atlantic. The first week was beautiful, ideal sailing weather. Sun was shining. He's off to a good start. He's feeling really good. He has this exercise routine he does every day on the boat, taking good care of himself and enjoying life. Suddenly, though, seven days in, about 800 miles in, he hit some bad weather. And uh, it is winter. You know, it's January, early February now. So that wasn't unexpected. He knew that that by the two months that he'd lost, he was going to probably be getting into some questionable uh, weather. But it it wasn't any worse than he'd ever seen. He wasn't worried. Everything still felt fine. He described blowing winds at 35 knots, large waves, but nothing that felt out of his real comfort zone. He went to bed one night. He put the boat on autopilot, climbed down in his little cabin, and went to bed in rough weather and rough seas. He was kind of half asleep when in the middle of the night he heard this really loud big bang sound on the side of the boat and immediately a flood of water started coming in the cabin and the water was rising quickly it was really above his head within even seconds he had hit an unknown object he still doesn't know what it was but he speculates maybe it was a whale something big and the boat quickly became swamped so he's asleep and has seconds to just wake up get his wits about him get above deck and get to his life raft, which he had stowed. And it was an inflatable raft. So it's kind of like you pull a yank a cord and it pops up. So he struggled with the life raft as his sailboat was sinking. And finally, the life raft inflates. And 
he's able to jump into the raft. So he's in this little six-foot Avon life raft, and it looks like a, like an inflatable kiddie pool almost. It's mm-hmm. round or maybe in all six feet, so um, round in shape. And then there's this canopy that comes up and would go over his head maybe on three-quarters of the body of the raft. So pretty small and, uh, you know, serves the purpose. So now he's in his life raft and he's watching his boat sink and he realizes I am not going to last very long in this raft without at least some basic supplies. So as the the busted boat is going down, he knows in his head and in his heart that his only chance of survival is if he dives back in, goes in the underwater hatch and digs around inside the cabin of his boat to find some supplies. That sounds like a terrifying thing to do like my heart rate is going up just picturing it yeah he he really knew that he might not come back out of that boat alive so he described making that decision as one of the most challenging parts of this whole adventure or whole disaster i should say so he grabs a knife uh, and puts the knife in his mouth dives back in the water opens the hatch, goes underwater. He can't see it in the middle of the night, so it's pitch black. He's feeling around. He has an emergency kit, and he's able to feel and find his emergency kit. He takes his knife. He cuts the rope that's holding the emergency kit down. He grabs it, and just as he's about to break back up through the hatch, the companionway to the sailboat, it a, a big rush of water just slams the hatch shut. So now he's underwater, hatch shut. He's pushing against it, can't push against the water, running out of air. And he feels like this is it. This is the end of the road. And at the last possible second, a big wave hits the boat from above and the waves kind of pushes the water off the hatch. And in that moment, he is able to push up the hatch, take a deep breath, get back out of the boat and swim back to his. Did he have the kit with him still at that point? Yeah, he had the kit. He was able to get the kit. He had a cushion of some kind that he was able to grab, probably just floating nearby, a sleeping bag. There was some food and even some emergency water in the kit, navigation charts, a short like mini spear gun. He had three flares and also three solar stills, which are uh, devices used for desalinating water. He didn't know how to use them. They were from World War II, but they were in this kit. And a copy of a book in the kit called Sea Survival that had been written by a sailor who survived a similar experience. So he had some forethought in putting that kit together. Little did he know wow. how much he would rely on it. So... He makes it back to his raft and he's kind of trying to hang on to the sailboat because it's still like looming under a little bit of water, but not fully sunk. But throughout that night with the high winds and the waves, he breaks away from his boat, drifts away, and he never sees his boat again. He's set adrift, cast away on his life raft. And because of the storm, it was really cold. He thought for sure he was going to die of hypothermia that very night. He didn't think he would make it until the next morning. So the next morning, and the skies were clear, the seas were calm, and things had really warmed up and calmed down, was pleasantly surprised. But it also hit him right then and there that 
he is completely alone and he's in like a particularly empty part of the Atlantic Ocean. This is an area where there's no nearby shipping lanes, not a lot of air traffic or boats coming by. And he has this selection of how he had told people before he left that if I don't show up in Antigua in like five or six weeks, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. When really he expected to show up in two or three weeks and he just knew nobody was going to be looking for him. He wasn't going to be missed. And he, he regretted having said that. It's really interesting that you would say something like that. It's almost like you don't care about yourself. Like, well, if something happens, it happens. And then you get into that situation and you might, like he did, wish that he hadn't said that. Because the reality is way harsher than what you imagine. Yeah, and I think he had a lot of psychological regrets because of his mind frame throughout this entire experience. Because he really was not, he was really looking for an escape. And he got a, an escape that he hadn't bargained for. And one of the interesting things about this as the story unfolds, he gets really a new perspective. And even to this day, 40 years later, it really changed his life perspective in kind of a meaningful positive. So I think he learned from that. So in this moment, he's 800, 1,000 miles from land, and he's at the mercy of the wind and the currents that are pushing him further west. And that's the direction he wants to go. Um, he estimates that he's about 350 miles from some major shipping lanes, and it should take maybe two weeks to drift in that distance as long as he stays drifting in the right direction. So he really has no control over where he goes, but he can navigate well enough to tell that he's going west and that's, uh, you know, that nothing he can change. He's aware that these shipping lanes are coming up in maybe two weeks. So initially he thinks, okay, I just, I got to just stay alive till I get to these shipping lanes and then somebody will see me. So he kind of struggles early on with the whole water situation. That was a challenge for him throughout he gets out these solar stills, and he can't figure out how to use them. There's three of them. He's never used them before. He doesn't know how they work. He's fumbling with them. So he's he's drinking his emergency drinking rations from his emergency kit, which is like eight pints or something that's, you know, you and I would drink in one day. So he finally gets to the point where he decides he's going to, like, take apart one of these stills, which will disable it, just to see how it works. He's going to sacrifice one of them to try and understand how he can get the other two to work. So he disassembles it. He kind of reverse engineers it, is able to figure it out. And then the other two stills start working because he knows a little bit more about what he's doing. And these are like inflatable. It looks like an inflatable pyramid almost with a clear plastic, you know, like a greenhouse-ish top. And so the sun comes in and the heat is supposed to separate the salt from the water. And mm -hmm. then you get a little bit of uh, clear water as it separates that way. So finally, it starts to work when he's way in the throes of dehydration. And at its best, he could collect just over a pint of water per day. So that's about two cups, 16 ounces of water per day at most. Wow. Not yeah, much. Not much. And he's bacon in the hot sun and really exposed to a lot of things that would require more hydration than that. 
at one point, he decided to try and collect rainwater from the canopy of this life raft, which was orange. And he had a little system where the rainwater would flow down the canopy and he had a little cup or something to collect it in. But all of the pigment from the canopy was running off in the water with it. And so the water was orange and chunky. And he said it mm-hmm. was like trying to drink somebody else's vomit. So Gross. He, that was not his preferred water source, but there were times when he had to rely on that. So that was his water situation. Food was the other challenge. He uh, had some emergency food and the spear gun. And he tried for days and days and days to use the spear gun to catch fish that were swimming by and just wasn't, wasn't able to get one. And then the, the firing mechanism on his spear gun broke. So now it's not really a spear gun. It's just like a spear that he could take in his hand and try and spear fish swimming by. So even harder to get any, any food with. So he just keeps trying, keeps trying, keeps trying. And finally, on day 14, two weeks into it, he kind of gets lucky and lands this big fish with this manual now spear gun. And so he's rejuvenated, he's energized, he's able to get some food. He sets up a little line on his raft to dry the fish on and and leave it hanging for later snacking. And then he keeps going with the the spear and is able to kind of hit or miss, get mostly mahi-mahi, trigger fish. He's also able to catch uh, flying fish and birds, which he ate, and he would even eat barnacles from logs and things that may, maybe would float by him. So he's getting little bits of food. He's getting little bits of water. And then soon, one night, pretty early on, in the middle of the night, pitch black, dark, he feels the raft get hit really hard from below. And ra- basically the raft is punched off the surface of the ocean, like upward. And he lands back down on the water and realizes that a huge shark is attacking the raft. Oh, my gosh. And he's he feels like it's a systematic attack. This shark is going back and forth, back and forth, trying to destroy his raft. <clears throat> so I even felt like it was just a matter of time before either he was going to be knocked out of the raft and eaten by the shark or the raft was going to be destroyed. And now he's in the water eaten by the shark. But another time where he's just like, all right, this is it end of the line so he gets his spear out and he spears the shark a few times and eventually the shark swims away he's deterred by the few spears that he receives so he actually speared the shark's body yes that had to feel so good yeah yes yeah especially to see that shark swim away probably felt like i won i won battle but i may not win the war you want to mess with me, Mr. Shark? I don't think so. I'm going to get the, sh- the sharp end of my broken spear gun. Okay, so here's where it gets just heart-wrenching. Day 15, he gets to, um, he's nearing the shipping lanes. And in the middle of the night, not far on the horizon, perfect condition, black night, perfect flat sea, he sees a ship coming towards <laughs> him. He could smell the diesel in the air. It was that close. He, he had a, these flares, like maybe three flares. So he shoots a flare, thinks, okay, there's no way the ship is going to miss this. The ship is coming closer to him. He's convinced he's been seen. He drinks most of his water rations because hey. rescue is imminent. 
And then the ship just went right by him. He went went so oh, close that his life raft was was rocking in the wake of the ship as it went by. And they just never spotted him. They didn't see the flare. They didn't see any of it. So when he looks back on that, he realizes that, yeah, it's really difficult to see things in the ocean. And he knew that. And he think it was he realized it was kind of wishful thinking that he would ever even be spotted anyway. So at that point, he gave up any hope that he was going to be rescued by a ship in the shipping lanes. He knew that if it didn't happen in that moment, it never was going to happen. So it, it dawned on him that the only way he was going to survive this is if he saved himself, was able to stay alive, and he made it across the Atlantic. He spotted nine ships throughout his ordeal, and none of them spotted him. Wow, that's brutal. So here's the other brutal thing. These uh, trade winds are pushing him west, but he also is a strong enough navigator to know that if he gets too far north, then the current is just going to circle him back towards the, the east, toward England, and that he might just end up in this big, you know, circling, flushing toilet that keeps just flushing him back out into the middle of the Atlantic. So he's not even convinced that he's going to make it to the Caribbean on the west side. But all he can do is hope. Okay, so now he's still a thousand miles from the Caribbean. Never did he imagine, even once he was in the raft, that he would in a million years be able to make it that far. But he passed the shipping lanes. He has no other choice. So he sort of buckles down on just trying to keep himself alive. And that's when it goes from bad to worse. Oh, no. It always does. It always goes from bad to worse. It does. Just when you think it can't. How can this get any worse? Ah. So he spears a fish and the the spear stays in the fish. And then the fish swims under his boat. He knew it was a risk to be using a spear in an inflatable raft to begin with. But the fish, with the spear through it, swims under his inflatable raft and rips a big hole in it. And the whole base of the raft deflates. Oh, no. The sides are kind of a separate container, so they stay inflated, but the base deflates. And now the system isn't stable enough for him to sleep or fish or get, you know, lean towards one edge. And he can't collect water anymore. And then he feels like, all right, this is really it. My ship is, or my raft is deflated. And I've kind of lost my last, my luck has run out. And there's no repair kit for the boat. Yeah, there is a little repair kit. So he spends like an incredible amount of energy trying to access this rip, this tear and repair it. And he tried a hundred times, a hundred different ways. Using all burning all kinds of calories trying to do it, taking all kinds of risks trying to access it, and came to the conclusion that he wasn't going to be able to do it. So at that point, he just decides he's going to give up. He resigns himself to death and he just kind of lays down in the raft and gives up. And, uh, and the bottom, the boat was deflated for about 10 days. So he laid there for days waiting to die. And then on about the 10th day, he says he just got really scared about dying. He, got, he had a lot of negative thoughts about what it was going to be like to die alone on the ocean. 
He was thinking about how he'd never given anything useful to anyone else in his life. He said he felt like he'd wasted his life and had a lot of regrets that crept up on him. And uh, these thoughts uh, and his, his attitude of resignation scared him. So in a final act of desperation, he remembered he had a fork in, in his kit. And there was, I'm, I'm not clear on how this worked, but there was some way that he was able to use the fork to get the repair kit to um, kind of salvage the raft to repair it in a way that he wasn't able to do before. He used it to keep the raft inflated. So he fixed the problem. He reinflated the bottom and he's back to the races. That wow, that is crazy. Yeah. Sorry, I just interrupted you, but that is absolutely crazy. When you're pushed to the very limit and all of a sudden your brain turns on. Yeah, yes. It was like a fight or flight response that turned on and it was it was a fight and fight he did. So now he's his raft is restored, but as you recall, he doesn't have that spear anymore. His spear tip is gone with the fish, so he can't fish anymore. And so he's just in this holding pattern, this period of waiting um, for land. And after 66 days, we're close to the 50, 60 days here, but after 66 days, his last solar still stops working. So he has no access to fresh water anymore. He said the cloth of the bottom of the still just rotted out completely. So it was beyond repair. They aren't designed to last that long in salt, in salt water. And his uh, body and his mind started shutting down. And we've talked about this in other stories of people lost at sea. He started to think, oh, there's so much water and it looks so good. I'm just going to drink this salt water. But part of his brain knew that that would kill him. And part of that part of his brain stayed alert and stopped him, stopped him from doing that. So he held back and just continued to float for a period of time, he thought maybe he was already dead. He thought, maybe I have died and this is death. He said he could feel all the people around him who had ever been lost at sea before and were never found and thought that uh, he was in hell and didn't recall the transition. That is really um, eerie. Yeah, really eerie. And one other thing he said that stuck with me is um, he, he said he was so thirsty. At one point, he thought if somebody offered him fresh, clean cold water in exchange for one of his hands, he would have absolutely traded his hand for a cup of water. Just wow. how, how overwhelming his thirst was. I'm going to be really more grateful for every sip of water I have today. Yeah. Okay. So he's in and out of consciousness. Day 76, he wakes up, opens his eyes, and he noticed some garbage like pl empty plastic water bottles and floating crates, plastic garbage accumulating around his raft, which he takes to be a good sign. And then shortly after, he kind of looks up on the horizon and he sees an island in front of him. <gasps> and it's no, no further than about 10 miles away, a small island. He And it's bright green. He hasn't seen any colors in 76 days. So the color was intense. The smells were intense. His senses are overwhelmed. And his, uh, he has the sense that the world is just like so beautiful. And this experience is so heart-wrenching. As he floats to this island, though, to his, uh, he, to his horror, he realizes that it's surrounded by these razor-sharp coral reefs. And he realizes he can't get to the island. And it's steep cliffs all around. 
So he's uh, feeling despondent again when suddenly a little boat, little motorboat, motors over and there's three local fishermen in there. And they see him and they boat over to him and they say, hey, what you doing, mom? And he just couldn't even talk, couldn't even uh, respond. And they were out fishing and, and he knew that they were going to rescue him and that he would survive. So he told them, you guys just do your fishing. And when you're done, I'll go with you. And he let them fish for a while. And then after their fishing, they they pull him into their boat. They bring him to shore on this little island, Marie Galante, which is the smallest island of Guadalupe. And it's interestingly, it's just 60 miles south of Antigua, his original destination. Crazy. So he couldn't walk. His leg muscles had atrophied so much. He'd lost a third of his body weight. He only weighed 100 pounds. So they had to help him up the shore. He convalesced in a local hospital there for about six weeks before he could travel. But, but later, he rebounded completely. He returned to his home in Maine. He wrote a book about it years later called Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea. And he, nowadays, he helps others through this experience that have had traumatic life events as well. And that's kind of how he finds his meaning and really kind of leads a pretty vibrant life. He still enjoys sailing. He still does ocean crossings, just not maybe solo. Oh, and interesting, he uh, he's pat patented a rib, folding, rigid, inflatable boat. It's a type of life raft called the clam that he designed based on his own survival experience. Does it have a kit with all of the things that you need in it? Because that's what he should have had from the beginning, I was thinking. Yeah, the main thing about the clam is that it allows you to sail. So he, esti he estimates that if he had this boat, this life raft that he designed, he would have made it across the Atlantic in 25 days instead of 76 days because it has this capacity to harness the wind power and, and sail a little bit versus just float. And have the other thing that I would really want in this circumstance would be sunblock and a hat. Those are definitely two things I would put in my emergency kit for sure if I was sailing. Yeah, I didn't mention this, but he was covered in skin sores when they got him from the sun and the salt. It's like his skin was degrading off of his body. Terrible. Have you seen that movie Life of Pi? I don't think I have. Well, it's a fictional story. Uh, it's a book that they made into a movie, but uh, Steve Callahan, it's about a person lost at sea. And Steve Callahan was a consultant on that with the director of that movie. So the movie features a lot of the lures and fishing tools and other devices that he improvised while he was out there floating around. It's kind of represented in that film. That's cool. Yeah. Well, man, it does not so, yeah, make me want to get survived. on a sailboat. Do you have any closing words about Steve Callahan you would like to say? Well, you know, I just think it was his uh, decision that he was going to have to save himself and that he had unfinished business in his life that kind of allowed him to stay alive and go on and live a meaningful life. That's awesome. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. This concludes this week's episode of The Crux. If you want to say any nice words about us or share us with a friend, that would be greatly appreciated. And enjoy the day. Thank you.